I love my wife. She is kind and gentle and strong and responsible and beautiful. But hey, she's got some flaws. At which point now I'm going to enumerate all of them to you and have an airing of grievances. No. There's one that's reared its head a couple times in our, our life together, and it is her disdain for filling her own gas tank. You know people like this, don't you? Right? They let it get down on the E and the little lights on, and they're like, I can go two or three hundred more miles. It's no problem. I remember one time in particular when I was in seminary, I had uh, finished my shift at work and, and was relaxing and studying, and, and my phone rang. It was my wife. She, was, she worked a lot. She helped get me through school. Again, strong, hard worker, great. Uh, and she was between her job as a nanny and her job as a server. And so uh, I w- it was unusual for her to call, and she says to me, you know, Justin, or actually Dragon, that's what she calls me. It's a whole long story. But anyway, you know, Dragon, my, my car seems to have run out of gas. And, and I need you to, to bail me out. And so, uh, being the hero that I am, uh, I quickly got in my car and got a gas tank. I didn't have like one of those gas tanks and had to buy it and fill it with gas and then go to the car and just be humiliated standing, by, standing in traffic as all the traffic goes by. And I'm like, I'm the guy filling the car up with gas. And everybody's like, that fool. <laughs> he didn't fill his car up with gas and now he had to get gas. Look how silly he looks. It's humiliating. The ignominy was almost unbearable. But oftentimes I thought in that moment, you know, don't you know what makes this whole thing go? Don't you know what powers it? She does. But oftentimes she just decides not to ensure that she is relying upon that power. What we'll see in Acts 2 today is that, that God pours out the power for the Christian life onto his people. God empowers his people to live out his statutes by giving them new hearts that are full of His Holy Spirit and a love for Him. And that's our main idea this morning, is that God's Spirit empowers the church for God's mission. And I'm going to exhort you to know Jesus. Uh, This morning, I don't know if I had too much coffee or if it was a movement of uh, the Spirit. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Uh, but either way, uh, I'm actually literally like had planned to preach all 13 verses. We did four last week. Uh, we're probably gonna get, only going to get through the first part of this, okay? Uh, even the introduction has kind of been ad-libbed at this point, and so uh, I'm just trying to tell you things are going to be a little messier than usual, all right? Uh, but hang in there, and we are going to uh, study Pentecost together on this Pentecost Sunday, uh, which was not by design, just a happy providential accident. And so, we will discuss Pentecost in light of number one there in your outline, the new 
covenant. Let's pray together and we'll get started. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to gather here together, to hear from you, to learn more about you, to encourage one another with the gospel. Help us to experience that fullness of your Holy Spirit that you give to each and every Christian. Help us to honor you this morning. Help us to listen well. Help me to preach well. Let us be submissive to you. Help us to put down our guards, any, any desire to prove how cool we are or um, how put together our lives are. God, just move that out of the way and help us to come before you as the people we are, imperfect. Help us to bring all of our imperfections to you and recognize that, that when we do that, that you lovingly say to us, well, that's perfect. I can work with that. God, we thank you that when we are weak, you are strong. We thank you that when we die to ourselves, we learn what it is to live. But teach us this kingdom economy more acutely this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So contextually in Acts, it is Pentecost, which comes 50 days after the Passover festival. It's been 10 days since Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would be poured out, that they would indeed be empowered to be his witnesses from Judea and in Samaria and unto the ends of the earth. And so there's been this period of waiting. Pentecost marks the beginning of the Feast of Weeks, but also is connected to the giving of God's law, the giving of God's first covenant at Mount Sinai. And so with that in mind, we come to verse 1 of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. We answered a lot of the questions you might have last week, and so I'll refer you to that message. The question we want to deal with this week, though, the first one, is why do this at Pentecost, right? Like, like God could have poured out his spirit a couple days before. He could have poured his spirit out a couple days after. Why right now? I think twofold. 
One is that this is a feast that celebrates the harvest and the Holy Spirit is beginning to collect what Jesus had purchased with his death and secured with his resurrection, which are worshipers from every tongue, tribe, and nation. The Holy Spirit has come to gather to God, the people of God, those who would have faith in him. So he's harvesting. But also because of this connection with Mount Sinai and the first giving of the law. What we are to see is that God is now going to interact with his people in a new way by giving them new hearts and filling them with his Holy Spirit. To help us understand this a little better, let's look at Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 at this first interaction. If you remember, we walked through the book of Exodus. I don't know how long ago that was now. Maybe a year, maybe two, who knows. Uh, But what's happened is that God has drawn his people out of slavery in Israel in order to draw them into relationship with himself. He's taken them out of slavery and placed them into sonship. He's adopted them. They are his people. And now they finally made it to Sinai and they are gathered around the mountain. They're they're getting ready to enter into this covenant with God to receive words from God. And this is what we read in verse 16. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke. I love the literal rending here. It says, as for Sinai, smoke. All of it. is completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain shook violently as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered. This is the God of the Bible. This is our God. Wonderfully awful. Terrifyingly good. He's the God who melts valleys with His feet and splits valleys with His presence. He causes knees to shake, hairs on arms to stand up at attention, and spines to tingle. This is an incredible experience. The mountain is smoke. The mountain is covered with the fire of God's presence. And the people shake in their boots as God speaks. He only gets through ten words. We know them as the Ten Commandments. Before the people cry out in chapter 20. You speak to us, Moses, and we will listen. But don't let God speak to us or we 
will die. If, if, if God keeps talking to us, we are, we are going to die. We cannot bear the words of God any longer. We'll, we'll, we'll listen to them, Moses, but, but you go and you get those words and you bring them back to us. Moses is going to be the mediator. He already is in Exodus. The mediator between God and the people. He brings the people's business to God and he brings God's business to the people. He unites the two. And so Moses goes to receive the law of God. There are 613 laws, and so uh, minus 10, he's got 603 laws to get. And while he's doing that, before he even gets down the mountain, we read in chapter 32 that as he comes down, he finds that people have given themselves over to the worship of a golden cow. And then he, he uh, melts down the cow, he makes him drink it. Remember, it's pretty cool. It's like the first evidence of Goldschlager in the world. Uh, but he melts his gold down, they, they drink it, and then they have all kinds of terrible things happen. And then he goes to broker a peace with God. He says, God, I know you want to kill... God says to him, hey, I'm ready to wipe everybody out and we'll start over with you. And Moses says, God, don't do that. Don't pour out your righteous wrath on this people. Like, I know we don't even have your law yet and we're breaking it, but, but please, please, for Israel's sake. And so God says, all right. And he sets up this thing with the Levites. They have uh, their swords and they say, if you're for the Lord, come to this side. And if you're not for the Lord, stay where you're at. And 3,000 people stay where they're at. And then the Levites take their sword and along with their swords, the judgment of God, and they kill 3,000 people who chose their idolatry rather than relationship with the living God. And what I want you to see from the get-go right here in Exodus, as God gives his word to the people, God gives his law to the people, and this covenant is made, what's happened is, is this covenant, it, it doesn't bring life. It brings death. Because what the law does is it shows us the heart of God and then it takes our hearts and, and shows them to us, right? The law reflects God's character. You, you want to see, the law's a good thing. You want to see the law, look at Jesus. He's the manifestation of what it is to keep every command, every precept of God. It's a good thing. But when we sinful human beings, when we look at the law, we see how ugly we really are. It's like a, um, I always compare it to if you've watched the detective shows, like they go into a room and it looks really clean and really nice. And they get that blue light, black light, whatever kind of light it is. And they shine that puppy and there are like bodily fluids all over the place. And you're like, it's really gross in there. You know, that, that was unseen all of a sudden becomes visible. And you realize, oh, that's, that's nasty. That's what the law does to us. All those secret sins we have, all those uh, parts of our life that are not in step with the Holy Spirit, all of those uh, things about us that rage against the holy God of the universe get exposed under the law. All of our idolatries, all of the murders we commit in our hearts, all of the adulteries we commit with our eyes, all of that gets exposed at once when we look at the law of God and see how we stack up. We recognize that we don't stack up. It's an MRI that reveals our sickness to us. 
the prescription for our healing in Exodus, it's, it's unavailable. The law of, the, of this covenant in Exodus is unable to give life because we cannot live up to it. We are imperfect. That's why Jeremiah, we read it earlier together, predicts a new covenant wherein God will give his people hearts of flesh, where God will send his spirit to enable his people to obey his law. They won't say to one another, hey, know the Lord, follow these commandments, but they will all truly know him. A time when he will forgive sins. And this is what, this is what Jesus brings to us. Jesus, like Moses, is a mediator, but he's the mediator of a better covenant, a covenant that brings life rather than death. And the way Jesus authors this new covenant is by fulfilling the old. And the author of Hebrews spends at least five chapters kind of fleshing this out. And his point is that Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than angels. He's better than any high priest. He's better than it all, and he's the author of a better covenant. He's fulfilled the old, and he gives you the new. Right? Hebrews 9.15 Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions or sins committed under the first covenant. So, so how does Jesus author this new covenant? He lives a perfect life. And then he goes to the cross and dies a substitutionary death. Then he raises from the dead in order to show the acceptability of his sacrifice. And so he, he fulfills the old covenant by living a perfect life. And then he fulfills the requirement of the old covenant that all who sin against God come under a curse. Galatians tells us that he becomes a curse for us. He dies on the cross for our sins. And then when we trust in him, we put our faith in him, he gives to us, he credits to us his righteousness. Now, we miss this positive aspect sometimes. Like when you come to follow Christ, your account with God doesn't go from like negative one billion back to zero. But yes, that happens when your sins are forgiven. But also, all that is in Jesus' account is credited to your account. So uh, it's as if... Uh, Jesus won the Congressional Medal of Honor and now you step up and that, that Medal of Honor gets hung around your neck. And God looks at you like he looks at Jesus and he gives you all of that applause, all of that honor, all of that joy. This is how the new covenant brings life. It's through Christ. Because his death has taken place in order to redeem us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
And so, so let's, let's set these things side by side. I want to set Sinai next to Pentecost, right? So on Sinai, God's presence comes down in fire, and the people are filled with fear. In Acts, God's presence comes down in fire, and the people are filled with faith. Now, on Sinai, the people can't bear to hear God's word. At Pentecost, the people of God speak God's word. On Sinai, 3,000 people give themselves to idols and come under the judgment of God. At Pentecost, 3,000 people give themselves to Christ and experience the blessing of God. It's in verse 41. On Sinai, the law is given to Moses. It exposes sin. It is able only to bring death. And at Pentecost, God's Spirit, the blessing of the new covenant, is poured out onto God's people in order to apply the work of Christ to them. At Pentecost, God's people experience the blessings of the new covenant. Life with God. It's incredible. The the old covenant can't hold a candle to the new covenant. uh, Jonathan Edwards said this, uh, that it is as the sun rising with its strength in the morning, and eclipsing the stars of the nighttime. The new covenant is so much brighter, so much more glorious than the old, that it eclipses it entirely. Paul speaks of it this way in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 11. Now, if the ministry that brought death, chiseled in letters on stones, that's old covenant, came with glory so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Pentecost is better than Sinai. The new covenant is far superior to the old. And the blessing of God's Spirit, God Himself coming to reside within His people, is empowering. It enables His people to love Him, to know Him, and to make Him known. It's how God empowers His church for His mission. And the way... I think the primary, one of the primary ways that God's Spirit empowers us for God's mission is by helping us daily, moment by moment, to know that we know Jesus. 
by giving us that assurance of our salvation. And this is what I mean. This is what the scriptures say the Spirit does for us. Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. 1 Corinthians 6.17, anyone joined to the Lord, that's Jesus, is one spirit with him. Galatians 4.6, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Ephesians 1. 13 and 14, in him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment, the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. When the Spirit of God comes to you and makes you together alive with Christ, He is guaranteeing to you that He will finish that good work of your salvation. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God is going to finish what He started in you. If you have God's Spirit, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, He's going to one day make you like Jesus Christ. He's going to conform you to his image. And he's doing it. He started that work even now. When, when you have the Spirit of God, it should, it should remove any doubt you have about God's love for you. The Spirit tells you, Jesus' death was for you. He reminds you of the gospel constant and steadfast and unfailing love of God. He testifies to that in you. I mean, if one of my kids came to me and said to me, Daddy, I really want you to love me, and so uh, today I'm going to be as good as I possibly can be. I'm going to follow every rule I'm going to have a perfect day so that you'll love me. I mean, that, that's, that's going to hurt my feelings. It's going to break my heart because I'm, I'm going to look at my, my son and say, listen, daddy doesn't love you because you obey me. Like, I, I love you because you are mine. Friends, it is the same with God. His spirit unites us to Jesus Christ and he he looks at us and he says, I don't love you because of your ability to obey me. We've all seen how that works out. I love you the same on your worst day or on your best day as you do on on your worst day as I do on my best day, on your best day. I love you not because of your performance, but because of my promise to you. I love you because I've chosen you and because you are mine. That's why I love you. And this is what the Spirit testifies. He tells you, God loves you. He assures you of that status before the Lord. 
He tells you God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. He is as happy over you, rejoices over you the same way that he rejoices over Jesus. And he's not going to stop being happy with you. He will cease being pleased with you when he ceases to be pleased with Jesus. And that's never, ever going to happen. This is the testimony of the Spirit in the heart of the Christian. That God loves you. He assures you of this. And friends, when you have this assurance of God's love for you, like when you know a love like that, you, you can do anything. Because there, there is nothing you will fear. Because you, you will recognize that you are entirely loved, totally accepted, completely secure before God. You will, you will recognize, and when I've got Jesus, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. He is my strength and my portion. When I have Jesus, the circumstances of life, which are as the shifting sands on the sea, they can't crush me. Because I have Jesus who is my rock, the rock of age is cleft for me and, and I hide myself in him. You're untouchable. You are empowered to do whatever it is God calls you to. I mean, this is, this is how all the martyrs of the fat past have been able to face their deaths. I always think of Polycarp. Very early on, he was a disciple of John. And they tell him, recant of this Jesus. He's an 86-year-old. He's in an arena. And we're we're going we're gonna to end you here. And he doesn't recant. Instead, he says, 80 and 6 years have I served him, and he has not failed me yet. How can I blaspheme my Lord and my Savior? And he goes to his death. It's how the reformer, uh, Mr. Lattimore, was able to say to his friend, Mr. Ridley, as they were about to be burned at the stake, be of good cheer and play the man. We shall this day light a candle in England by God's grace, as I trust shall never be put out. When you know the love of God like this, when you are assured of the Holy, when the Holy Spirit assures you of God's love for you, you can do anything because all of your fear should be, is evacuated. All of your fear is evacuated and you are empowered. And so you can face death. You can, you are equipped and empowered to face cancer. You are equipped and empowered to face your aging. You are equipped and empowered to endure any and every hardship. And you can do it, do it like, like the apostles did. Look at them in Acts. They're in jail and they are singing hymns. They're like, oh, you're going to throw me in jail? That's great. I'll sing some hymns and convert everybody up in here. All right? They, they face these trials. Like Paul has a thorn in the flesh and he's like, this is awful. God, take it away. And God says no. God, take it away. And God says no. God, take it away. And God says no. God says, I'm going to give you what is best for you. And in your suffering, you're actually going to become closer to me 
than you ever imagined. In your suffering, I'm going to turn your weakness into strength. You can face your suffering. You can face those thorns in the flesh, wherever they'll come from, but with a smile and give thanks to God for them because the Spirit inside of you testifies to God's love for you. The Spirit in you assures you of God's love for you. And that empowers you to joyfully and fearlessly endure anything. It's what it does for the apostles here. Fills them with joy and boldly they go out and proclaim the gospel. Verse 5, Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused. Because each one of them heard the apostles speaking to him in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't these Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But some sneered and said, They're drunk on new wine. Paul picks up on this idea of spirit-filledness and drunkenness in Ephesians, I'm sorry, yeah, Ephesians 5:18. And he says, Don't be drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit. I see what's, what's going on here is he's comparing the two. Because being filled with the Spirit, experiencing God in your life, is like being drunk and not like being drunk. So what happens when you're drunk is uh, your inhibitions are dramatically lowered and your mental processes are depressed. That's why alcohol is called a depressant. It makes you stupid. That's why many people are happy when they're drunk. They're happy because they're dumb, right? That's what's going on. And when those inhibitions are lowered, you're more prone to do things that you normally wouldn't do. More joyful and and bold. That's why they call it liquid courage, right? Likewise, one who is filled with the Holy Spirit is joyful and bold. But not because they've become stupid or their mental processes have been slowed down or because their inhibitions have been lowered. Quite the opposite. The person who is being controlled by the Holy Spirit has been made awake to the reality of God. Awake to the spiritual realities that, that are in our midst even now. The Holy Spirit wakes us up to the love of God for us, to the truth of the gospel. And then it fills us with a joy that doesn't disappear with a hangover the next day. A joy that is true and lasting. And it gives us a fearlessness that is rooted not in our stupidity, 
but in our security in Christ. And God makes us awake when he pours out his spirit. It's, it's the same as in Genesis 1 when he says, let there be light and there's light. When God pours his spirit out into us, he says, let them be full of light. Let them understand, let them see. And we come to life. Awake to the reality of God's love for us. And when we are awake to this reality, we become just completely controlled by the things of God. We recognize that there is nothing better than Jesus. And that's what these apostles realize. And I wonder, do you? Do you have this kind of assurance from the Holy Spirit? Do you, do you know God like this? And if you're, if you're not a Christian, I tell you you, you, you can know God like this. Just say, God, I, I'm done doing life my way. I'm tired of trying to prove myself. Give me Jesus. Get off of that treadmill of earning status among people. Just say, God, I need you. And he'll say, I can work with that. That's perfect. My strength is perfected in weakness. Here's my spirit. I I love you. My precious child, never will I leave you or forsake you. If you are a Christian, you need to have this assurance. You need to listen to the Spirit's testimony that God loves you and that he's empowered you to do whatever it is he's called you to do. In the case of these apostles, it's to, to witness from Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And it's going to be to witness in your case too. He empowers you to have that awkward conversation at Thanksgiving with your family. He empowers you to overcome whatever sin or addiction is keeping you away from him. Do you have this assurance? And here's my concern is I think one of the reasons when they do these studies, like the Pew Research Center or the Barna Group do all these studies, and they go, you know, it doesn't seem like it matters if you're a Christian or not, because statistically, you look a lot like the world. Your sins are the same of their, as their sins. Sometimes your sins outpace theirs. I don't know being a Christian makes a difference. But I look at those statistics, and what it tells me is that many people who come to church on Sunday or every once in a while, many people who profess to have the Spirit of God, profess to be born again, are not. And don't know Christ. So look, examine yourself this morning. The question isn't, uh, did I uh, walk an aisle once upon a time? and say that I trusted Jesus? That's the wrong question. The question is, am I trusting Jesus? Not, did you trust Jesus somewhere in the past, but are you trusting Jesus right now? Perseverance in the faith is proof that you are possessed by God. True faith perseveres to the end. Are you trusting Jesus? I love what John Piper has said on this. He says, I don't know I'm alive because I have a birth certificate. I know I'm alive because I'm breathing. 
Brothers and sisters, are you breathing this morning? Are your spiritual senses awake to the reality of God's love for you, awake to the reality of Jesus? Have you tasted and seen that Jesus is of greater worth than anything else and it's not even close? Listen, we have lots of nice stuff. We do. They're all, it's all rubbish compared to Christ. Earlier, I said that the Spirit will empower you to face any suffering. But I actually think that the danger to us is not in facing hardship. Typically, when I see Christians face hardship, uh, they come closer to God than they ever have before. God does a revolutionary work in their lives. I think the threat to us is prosperity. I think when things are going really well and we look around at our nice houses and we sit on our nice couches and look at our our big TVs and ride around in our uh, really comfortable cars and look at our our perfect little families, we become, as Israel, instead of Israel, fat and stupid. We begin to rely on ourselves rather than God. We, We begin to forget that we need to depend on God for absolutely everything. We begin to turn our eyes away from he who matters most, to all these things that are lesser than, all these things that cannot satisfy. Only Jesus can satisfy. He's so much better than all of your stuff. Listen, I I love my wife, I do, but Jesus is far better. I'm happy to have both, but if I have to choose, give me Jesus. And she'll tell you the same thing. I don't even know that she's happy that she has both. (laughs) Jesus is better. Is he the most important thing in your life? If he is, that's the work of the Spirit of God in you. If he's not, brother, sister, friend, repent of your sin. Stop following your heart and start following Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit. Your sin will only disappoint you. But Christ, he'll assure you. That impenetrable armor of assurance will empower you to live for his glory. Know Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are faithful when we are not. Thank you that your love is steadfast, that you love us not because of our performance, but because of your promise to love us in Christ, who died for our sins and rose for our justification. Thank you that our hope is not tied up with the transient things of this world, that our hope is not in things that moth and rust destroy, that our hope is not in these bodies that will decay, but in you, the author of life, the one who will give us new bodies, the one who will make all things new, the one who will wipe every tear from our eyes. God, thank you for these wonderful truths. Thank you for 
pouring out your Holy Spirit into us, empowering us to live boldly for your glory. Your Spirit testifies in us and and our prayer is that he would testify through us to all of those that we encounter. Our desire is that your kingdom would break through in our lives, in our church, in our community. God, we, we are so done with church as usual. So done with business as usual. We want you to shake us up and to shape us into the image of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us and is coming again so that you might live with us as you already live in us. Thank you for all these wonderful truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.